Good morning. It has been a while since I've stood on this stage. Um, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Tyler Walsh. I actually uh, live in La Grande, Oregon, across the state, and I direct a, a camp over there called Camp Elkanah. Before that, I was interning here at this church. This is where I came to know the Lord for a while, so um, I thought it would be helpful for me, coming back to kind of my old stomping grounds, to try to relive my glory days a little bit. <laughs> so I do, used to do youth ministry here. I'm in camp. I do youth ministry a lot. A pretty classic youth ministry game is called Would You Rather, okay? If you've never played, it's very simple, okay? I'm going to give you two choices, and you have to choose, okay? So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand for a choice, okay? So here's the first one. Would you rather have no cell phone or no internet? <laughs> no cell phone or no internet, okay? Who'd go for no cell phone? You would still have a landline that connects to the wall for some of you, um, okay? And who would go for no internet? Wow, awesome. I think I'd go for the cell phone as well, okay? Uh, would you rather be able to fly or read people's minds? Okay? <laughs> this is getting dangerous. Okay? Who would fly? <laughs> You're scared to know what people think of you. <laughs> Who would read people's minds? You brave souls. Okay. This one you have to choose the lesser of two evils. Would you rather be cursed into only ever being able to wear 80s jumpsuits? <laughs> for the rest of your life, or <laughs> you're already there, <laughs> just kidding, um, or would you rather be cursed into only being able to wear 80s hairstyles for the rest of your lives, and I'm going to qualify hairstyles to guys, it has to be a mullet shoulder length, <laughs> and ladies, it has to be the big poofy perm that my mom had when I was born, Okay? <laughs> Jumpsuits. Hair. <laughs> awesome. All right. Last one. Would you rather have a dollar of Monopoly money or a $100 bill of real money? Okay. Who'd go for the dollar of Monopoly money? Yeah. Who'd go for the $100 bill? It's no choice. <laughs> yeah. The whole point of the game is to kind of give you choices that are kind of hard to make. This last choice is obvious. There's no competition. One is temporarily valuable. One really holds no meaning in terms of the real world. Anyone with any sense of perspective would not choose this. You would all choose this because it has genuine meaning. It has actual value in the scheme of things. See, the life that is self-focused on the world, on material things, on my own glory, on temporary self-glorification is the monopoly dollar bill. The life that is focused on pursuing Christ with all that we are, with placing stock in eternal things, that's the $100 bill. That's what's significant. And so the Bible is going to lay before us these two choices 
And so if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 11. The words will also be on the screen behind me. Uh, The pew should have a Bible in it. Uh, You could take that home. I am uh, positive that that would be this church's gift to you. Before we read, I would uh, appreciate it if you guys would just bow your heads and pray with me for a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I ask God that you would send your spirit among us today, that you would proclaim your word through my lips, you would cause uh, the words that don't count to fall away, the words that do to rise up. God, I pray that your son Jesus would be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, there is a price to becoming a disciple of Jesus. You may have heard something along the lines of you don't need to do anything to earn God's favor. You don't need to do anything to earn God's love. And that is true. And that's actually in these verses. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But that does not negate the fact that Jesus told us if any person's going to follow me, he needs to take up his cross and do it daily. He needs to forsake family, friends, job to follow me. There is a call here to give up everything. And so there's this cost of following Jesus. And it's It's everything. And yet, we lose nothing. We profit from it. We don't lose anything when we follow him, even though we're giving it all up. So let's look in this passage. Paul seems to give up. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote it, and he gives up what I'm going to refer to as ritual righteousness. Now, ritual righteousness is a righteousness that you attain by performing rituals. Okay, An example would be a student who uh, performs all the assignments on time, hands them in, does a great job, aces all the tests, perfect class attendance, all the extra credit homework. This student has attained, has earned her academic righteousness. It is rewarded with an A on her report card or a 4.0. Now that sort of thing works in some scenarios like school, work a little bit, but it doesn't work across the board. We're going to see Paul gives up a ritual righteousness. See this phrase in verse 7, whatever was to my profit, he's referring to the previous paragraph where he lays out his credentials for ritual righteousness. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. That's a tall order. That's a pretty bold statement. He has in effect just said, if you think you can earn God's favor, I can do it better. Okay? He's just laid down a gauntlet and said kind of a really prideful thing. And so he lays it out. He says, circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, it's another phrase, uh, you could just substitute ritual righteousness, it's the same kind of thing, a righteousness that comes from obeying the law, from uh, doing the right things, he says faultless. So Paul lays that out, and and really any first uh, century Jew would have looked at Paul as a model uh, religious leader. They would have seen him as an example, as someone who's probably closer to God than the average person who prays longer, knows more of the scriptures, and hangs out in the synagogue more than most. And they would have seen him in that light, and, and that is what he was, and that's what he himself was placing stock in. But he says, I've got to let that go. You see, to follow Christ, we have to let go of any sort of self-produced ritual righteousness. See, for us today, we might say something along the lines of, I tithe regularly. I read my Bible every morning. I pray and journal. I'm a good person. It's entirely possible to be ritually righteous and seen as good among people and yet have absolutely no righteousness when we stand before God. In Isaiah 64, he says, he being Isaiah, speaking the words of the Lord, he says that when people come before me with those righteous works in an attempt to impress me and to earn my favor and to gain merit, that's like filthy rags. It is repulsive. It is disgusting. I don't want to see it. It is true that we can't do anything to earn God's favor and Paul realizes to follow Jesus means we need to let that go. I mean, there's something about you and me, this is a, this is a sin of my own, and I, and I believe it's in this room with you guys as well, that we want God to be proud of us. We want him to look at our spiritual report card and say, good job, you did it. And that's just not how it works. We have to let that go. And the reason is, ritual righteousness is entirely external. Look at the list Paul gives. There's nothing in there about heart transformation. There's nothing in there about um, atoning or taking care of or forgiving his sin. So you and I have a problem that we have rebelled against God. We have disobeyed. There are things that he has told us to do that we have not done. And there are things uh, that he has told us not to do that we have very clearly done. We have felt wrongly, we have done wrongly, we have thought wrongly, myself included. And we cannot out-earn it. There is, in the 1800s, a preacher named Sindelin Jones, and he had a quote. He said, you may as well try to get across the Atlantic Ocean in a paper boat as to get to heaven by your own good works. I mean, his, his point is obvious, isn't it? You could never do it, and you would die trying trying to earn our way with God, it's spiritual suicide. See, to follow Christ, we've got to let that go. And if we attempt to fix ourselves by performing, doing church kind of things, we place upon ourselves a burden we just can't carry. We can't do it. We have to lay that down. And that is actually a very refreshing thing 
because there's another righteousness that is offered to us. Jesus offers us an unearned favor with God, something that he has attained and gives to us. And I'm gonna get to that in a moment. But I I just wanted to start off this sermon basically where the text starts. And that is that if you are here this morning believing that your standing with God is based on your Bible reading, your tithing, your prayer time, or how many times you cuss in a day, that's just not true. I'm inviting you to let that go, to set it at the foot of the cross. And see, Paul takes it the next step. See, in the next sentence in verse 8, he says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So, I uh, grew up visiting my dad every summer, every other Christmas, and spring breaks, and some holidays, and he lived in eastern Idaho. Now, my dad's side of the family loved poker. They still do. So, uh, I'm not sure how you feel about it, but I grew up playing poker quite a bit, so I you know, learn five-card draw, five-card Monty, or five-card stud, two-card Monty, uh, Texas Hold'em, all that stuff. I remember watching uh, the World Series of Poker on ESPN. So <laughs> poker is officially considered a sport, if you didn't know. <laughs> now, if, if, you don't, if you've never played poker, the way it works is you're given cards and you bet based on the cards in your hand. And what you're doing when you're betting is you're betting based on the value of your cards, Okay. Now, there's a bet you can do called going all in. That's where you put all of your chips, everything that's worth any sort of value in the game, you put that all in the middle of the table. And what you're doing is one of two things. You are either lying, getting everyone else to believe that you have really good cards in an attempt to get them all to fold, which is quitting, so that you would just automatically win. Or, what's more likely, because it's pretty risky to lie on that one because then you're out, more than likely what you're doing is you're saying the cards that I have in my hand are so good that anything else on this table cannot beat it. It is that valuable. It is that good. I'm willing to put everything on the line to prove that. You see, Jesus or Paul here has gone all in. He has put it all on the line because what he has in his hand is so good, nothing could beat it. He has put it all on the line. If you know much about the Apostle Paul, you might know before he became a Christian, before he started writing the Bible, he was a, a, an enemy of the church. He persecuted the church, okay? And he, re, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's, he's basically on his way to a church to arrest people for being Christians. And he meets Christ on that road. Now, not only does he immediately need to let go of that ritual righteousness, but it, just think for a moment the implications. His employment changed that day. He officially no longer worked for the synagogue. People who were his friends turned on him and became his enemies. People who were his enemies, people that he was going to arrest. In fact, one of the guys he was going, seeking out, ends up um, praying for him, laying hands on him, becomes his friend and brother in Christ. See, it's not just Paul's ritual righteousness that changes. Everything changes. And so I want you to think for a moment for yourself Try to think specifically in your head. What would the word everything mean for me? What would it be that I would need to give up? Is it your job? Or is it uh, significant relationships that you need to really re-examine? Is it your bank account? 
I don't know what it is for you, but Paul here says everything is a loss. All things. I'm putting it all on the line. Where I go to church back in Legrand, we're going through the book of Joshua right now. And in the book of Joshua, God's people are uh, taking the land of Israel that has been promised to them, and they are supposed to drive out the inhabitants. But they leave pockets of resistance. They don't fully obey. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, the following books, those pockets of resistance are a thorn in their side. They eventually lead to compromise of their faith and to idolatry. Okay? When we follow Jesus, we are not to leave pockets of resistance in, in, our, in our own life. He is Lord of everything. He sits on the throne and we give it all up and we bow down and we say, it's yours. It's all on the table. Paul is a guy that lives this out. He is, <laughs> if you've read his life, he's honestly kind of crazy. Um, he goes city to city and basically just walks into a church that, well, it's called a synagogue, a church that doesn't believe in Jesus and starts telling them, you are all sinners and you need to follow Jesus. He basically just does that. So that's pretty bold in the first place. Uh, and he routinely gets persecuted for this. Okay? He routinely gets run out of the church. Uh, murder attempts are made on his life. People slander him. He gets put in jail, all sorts of stuff. Now, in the book of Acts, this is where all of this is taking place, there comes a moment where he's traveling to the city of Jerusalem to do what he always does, to tell people about the Lord and to try to get people to follow Jesus, okay? And he's got some friends who are saying, don't go, you're going to get hurt. And he makes this statement. I'm going to turn to it in my Bible. It's in Acts 20, 24. It's not up on the screen, but... He says, he's going to uh, Jerusalem, and he basically says, I don't know exactly what's going to happen to me there, but I know what's happened in every other city that I've been to. Every other city I've been to, I've, pre- I've faced hardship and trial. Here's what he says. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 22. I'll read it to you. Uh, it says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So I don't know for sure, but I know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Every city I've been to, I've had this issue. I don't know for sure what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but in all likelihood, I'm, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be probably thrown in jail, slandered. Something's going to happen, okay? And this is the phrase. I would encourage you to memorize this verse and make this the prayer of your life. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Imagine for a moment you're in a job interview. The job looks pretty good, pays decent, and they tell you, hey, if you come work for us, you get to travel internationally. And you're like, sweet. I get to go to some pretty cool exotic places on the company dime. But your potential employer says, "Uh, but you're going to have to pay for it. Oh, okay. And if you go... They, they really don't like our company over there. So we have had some employees that have, you know, had rumors spread about them. Uh, they've even been put in jail or beaten. Uh, it's possible you could just die a horribly painful death and never come back. <laughs> you're in this job interview and you're like, what is going on? Like, are you willing to take that? 
Paul says, for the sake of Christ, yeah, I'm willing to endure that. I'm willing to go through that. I consider my life worth nothing to me. See, for you and me, I know I struggle with this, our natural inclination is to cling to our life, to make that $1 of monopoly money really count. We really try hard to make enough money here or to be comfortable enough here. And Paul says, I'm letting all of that go. We believe this very simple but very powerful lie that if we let go of control of our own life, we will not be as happy. That God does not know how to make us as happy as we know. It's a very simple lie, and all of us believe it to some degree or other. You see, but the truth is, Jesus says that it's when you lose your life, that's when you find it. The irony is that when we stop counting our life, that's when God makes our life count. See, we we get so confused. We think that death is life, and we think that life is death. We see sin, and we believe its promises to us that it will somehow satisfy We see materialism and a comfy couch and a big TV and we think that's where it is. It's not. It's giving those things up for something greater, something eternally valuable. So Paul lays it all on the line. He goes all in and he eventually even calls his life rubbish here. The next sentence, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. The word rubbish there only appears once in the New Testament, right there. It's a, it's a vulgar slang word for trash, refuse, garbage, or fecal matter. It's, it's meant, I just heard someone go, ooh, yeah. That's, that's what you're supposed to do. In reading that sentence, you're supposed to go, ew, that is like hard to read. That's gross. It, I mean, some of you might even be thinking in your mind, is that really in the Bible? I'm going to check that. Paul is intending to shock his readers into going, Why? Would you consider it so worthless, valueless, uh, incredibly gross even? He literally says he's throwing his life in the trash, and for what? And here's the key to understanding this passage. There's a few key words that we should pay attention to. Once he says profit, twice he says loss, and then once he says gain. If you are in the business world, you might recognize those as financial, you might think of those in financial terms. At camp, every month, we do what's called a profit and loss statement. And I'm pretty sure the church probably does one too. Wherever you work, probably does one on some sort of regular schedule. And what a profit and loss statement is, is it tells you what came in this month and what went out. What was my profit and what was my loss? Paul here has basically just told us what the loss is, what the cost, the ritual righteousness, everything, all things. That's the loss. The profit is what he's going to turn to now. What he gains in losing those things, what it has cost him is nothing in compared to what it gives him, what it benefits him. And he says that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God is is by faith. I mentioned earlier this idea of ritual righteousness. He sort of returns to it here and places side by side another sort of righteousness, one that I'm going to call relational righteousness. So he says, I want to be found in Christ, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's the ritual righteousness produced by me comes from keeping the law. But he says this, I don't want that righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So two righteousnesses here. One, from me, external, requires my obedience. In the end, I'm uh, unable to really even do it. Another righteousness, relational righteousness, comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is not external, it is internal. It doesn't just impress people on the outside, but it actually transforms and replaces my heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and so that not only do I have righteousness before men, which really doesn't even count, and it may or may not happen if you have this relational righteousness, but when you die and stand before God himself, you are righteous. You are seen as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. It's the difference between a monopoly dollar bill and a hundred dollar bill. The choice is so obvious. My prayer is that we would have, myself included, the perspective to see it. We get so easily trapped into that dollar bill thinking. Little kingdom, my own world, thinking. So, He says that I may gain Christ. What does that mean? I'm only 26. I think it would take a lot more life experience and a lot more time to really expand all the benefits there are in knowing Christ. But this righteousness that I see in the text that I believe is there, I think is the biggest. That is one of them. But there are so many more. We can't earn it. Instead, like the name suggests, we get it by relationship with Jesus. Okay, so the next verse, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So, I wonder for a moment when I was studying this, what he means when he says, I want to know Christ. So if I were to say to you, I'm holding this glass of water, and I were to say to you something along the lines of, I would really like a glass of water. That makes no sense, because I'm holding one right here. Paul is writing the Bible. He clearly knows Christ at this point, okay? There's no question. So when he says, I want to know Christ, what what does that phrase mean? We have to think about Jesus and our relationship with him differently than a glass of water, okay? So your relationships, uh, as you know, they're not stagnant things. They're more like rivers than they are ponds. They flow and they move and they change. They develop, okay? It is accurate to say, I I came to know Christ back when I was in like seventh grade, okay? And it is accurate to say that I knew Christ then. But I know him a lot differently now than I knew him 13 years ago, okay? And, And by God's grace, I will know him a lot more in the next 20 years than I know him right now. You see, Paul is on this continual mission to know Jesus more and more and more. I I hope that's true of you, that it just hasn't been a one-time prayer to receive Christ, and that's kind of it. 
but it has begun a continual process of investigating who Jesus is and going through my life and saying, where are those pockets of resistance and continually bowing them down to him. This is a lifelong process. Following him means actually getting up, putting one foot in front of the other and walking and following over and over continually. He wants to know Christ. Continue getting to know Christ. My encouragement to you is that you would continue. If you're at a moment in your life right now where you're feeling spiritually dry, I would just pray this prayer. I want to know you more. The dryness is not a result of you having exhausted the character of God. It is something else. Okay? The next phrase, the power of his resurrection I love this phrase. Now, Easter is one of my favorite holidays. We get to talk about Jesus actually rising from the dead. I, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I think I really recognized how significant that is, and I, and I believe there's still more for the Lord to teach me on this, but death has been our greatest enemy since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled against God, death is what comes. Sin always leads to death. And this is something that you and I have never been able to beat. Uh, you guys know King Tut? You probably don't know him. He's been gone a while. But you know, you know of him. He and a lot of other Egyptian pharaohs are found with piles of gold in their tombs, all sorts of earthly precious things. And the thinking was that if he is buried with that, it will give him favor in the next life, the life to come. No matter how much gold you're buried with, you still die. The power of the resurrection, we have never been able to overcome death. We have been able to maybe slow it a little bit, and we can, that's even a deceitful thing to think because God is the one that determines how slow it really goes. Some of you, myself included, we know painful sudden loss, don't we? We don't control that. We don't control death one bit. It is our strongest enemy. No matter how healthy we eat, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much we exercise, no matter how rich our friendships are, anything we cannot stop death. It is the unbeatable enemy, except in Christ. The power of his resurrection. Do you realize how powerful God is to overcome an enemy that for millions of years people have been fighting against? Thousands and thousands of generations of people have fought against death and resisted it and pushed against it. And God, in three days, overcomes it. The power of the resurrection resides in you and me. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. When we follow Jesus, we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. The same power that rose him from the dead is in you. Which, as an aside, is the very same reason Paul gives us to why we no longer have an excuse for a lifestyle of sin. We can beat it. We have overcome death the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Whew. Resurrection is easy to talk about. Sufferings, not so much. We want to know the resurrection, the sufferings. It's an interesting thing. You know, we live in a time 
that in terms of kind of the history of humanity and, and Christian history in general is very unique. The fact that we're gathered here free of any fear that a cop is going to show up and do something about that is unique in our time and place in the world. The first Christians very much knew what he meant when he said the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, I, I find it interesting. He doesn't actually say that it's the sufferings he wants to know. He says that it's the fellowship. Now, I've never been in the military. I know some of you have. But I hear boot camp is kind of awful. Uh, <laughs> and, and yet, it seems like, from what I have experienced, guys in the military make some of their closest friends there. I think it's maybe that when you get shot at or when you're crawling through the mud together, that does something to a relationship. I, I think suffering together is the super glue, actually, of the human soul, and that when we suffer for Christ, it creates a bond for him. It creates a unique relationship with him. You know, I, I subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs, their newsletter, and they, they very much focus on the persecuted church. And it was an interesting phrase. There was a uh, Christian prisoner who was let out, and he said, I don't really want the torture or the prison again, but sometimes I do miss jail. I miss the times of prayer there. You're just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> For you and me, like, to identify with that is really difficult. When we actually suffer for Christ, when it costs us something to say that we follow him, that's actually a good thing. That deepens the relationship. So he wants to know the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Death and resurrection are huge themes in Paul's letters, both physical death and resurrection of the human body and of Christ himself, but metaphorically he uses it to talk about leaving this old way of life, this dropping of the ritual righteousness, this dropping of uh, my own life and world that's dying to self. I am, I've been honored. I, I get to perform my first wedding in August, and I don't know exactly everything I'm going to say, but I know my first line because I've, I've had it in my mind for a while. Um, I'm going to say this. You all think you came to a wedding, but this is actually a funeral. Yeah, it's like, you're like, what? <laughs> to marry somebody, to enter into that significant relationship requires that you now start dying to yourself. Your own desires need to be let go to now serve and be with this other person. Okay? When we follow Christ, same dynamic. You have come to a funeral the most glorious funeral you've ever been to because that self that dies needs to die. He has been dragging you down. He's been holding you back from actual joy. Do you realize how this chapter starts and one of the huge themes in Philippians is joy in Christ, is a rejoicing? This is not a somber death. This guy needed to die so that this one could rise. There is a joy and a rejoicing in Christ that just cannot take place unless you have died to yourself. I encourage you today, think through your life. Are you living for the monopoly dollar bill? Have you died to yourself? Have you thrown this down and taken this up? And the irony, this analogy only goes so far because in reality, it's this that you need to throw down. 
It's the material things in this world. It's, it's our own fleshly desires. And the beautiful thing is, when it's thrown down, it's not just discarded. It's not just death and then a new thing. It's a transformed, redeemed, resurrected thing. So actually, I've been talking about how you're needing to give everything up and die, you know, all these encouraging things. <laughs> when you let go of it, God takes hold of it, transforms it, redeems it, raises it up, and it is better than it has ever been or ever could be in your own control or power. Whatever we have lost for the kingdom, Jesus says, we're getting back tenfold. We don't give anything up. We are actually gaining everything. So, so what? Uh, Back in the day when I was here, um, Scott uh, helped teach me how to preach, and one of the questions he always asked and was, I love you, but a little bit annoying. (laughs) But it's actually a good thing was, so what? When you walk out this morning, you're going to go back to work tomorrow, and you're going to watch the Super Bowl, and that motivation, that kind of pep talk feel you might get will drive down. So what is actually different walking out the doors? The assignment, my hope for you, is to examine your life. Where do you put your time? Where do you put your money? What are your relationships characterized by? What do you value? What are you willing to give up? I would encourage you to be brutally honest. Make a list that if I had to give this up, I wouldn't follow Christ. We all probably have something. Identify it. That's a pocket of resistance. And lay it down at the cross. Let me pray for you guys and myself. Oh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to say with Paul that we consider our lives worth nothing if only we may finish the race and complete the task that you've given us, the task of testifying to the gospel of your grace. May that be uh, the true, genuine, and authentic desire of our hearts, Lord. Uh, God, I pray for the rest of this service that you would be honored and blessed uh, by the worship. Lord, we love you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.